Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 48, The Love of Her Life, Grigory Potemkin. Last week, we recounted the story of the greatest peasant rebellion in Russian history, the Pugachev Rebellion. That, the war with the Turks, and the building of the Hermitage Museum took up much of Catherine's time. Her boy toy at this time was the young Alexander Vasilchikov, who, as the Empress put it, had his head stuffed with hay. She yearned for a partner with brains as well as good looks. Catherine began to think about the young man who she first met the night she staged her coup to take control of Russia, one Grigory Potemkin. On December 4, 1773, the now 44-year-old Empress wrote the following note to Potemkin. Quote, Lieutenant General, you are so busy, I wager, gazing at Celestra, that you have not time to read letters, and though I do not know if your bombardment has been successful, I am confident that everything you undertake is motivated solely by your ardent devotion to me, personally, and, in general, to the beloved country which you love to serve. But since, for my part, I wish to preserve men who are devoted, courageous, intelligent, and judicious, I beg you not to expose yourself to danger. On reading this letter, you will perhaps wonder for what purpose it was written. The answer is that I wish to give you confirmation of my regard for you, for I am, as ever, your very kindly disposed, Catherine. She was clearly in love with the man. But this was not a one-way love affair, as Potemkin was head over heels in love with Catherine, whom he called the inaccessible one. He wrote, quote, Oh God, what torment it is to love one to whom I dare not speak my love, one who can never be mine, barbarous heaven. Why did you make her so beautiful? Who so great? He was relieved of his duty at the siege of Silistra, and in January of 1774, he made it to the court of Catherine. Before we get into their relationship, here's a little background on Potemkin. Grigory Alexandrovich Potemkin was born on October 16, 1739, in Chizhovo, near the city of Smolensk, as the son of a middle-of-the-road noble landowner family. His father, Alexander, a decorated war veteran, died when Grigory was only seven. His mother, Daria, knew that for the boy to move up in the world, they would need to move to Moscow, which they did with the help of his godfather, Matveyich Kislovsky. Kislovsky was rumored to have been Potemkin's real father, but many of these rumors were spread by his enemies, which is why I really dismiss the proposition. Early on, he was an excellent student, excelling in language and theology. But after a visit to St. Petersburg, he fell into a bout of, quote, drinking, gambling, and promiscuous lovemaking. By June of 1762, Sergeant Potemkin legendarily gave Catherine his sword knot right before she staged her coup over her husband Peter. Because of this, Catherine had him added to her inner circle and sent him to Sweden to announce the change in leadership. Upon returning, he got into a fight which caused him to lose his left eye. This loss made him very self-conscious, allowing only two portraits to be made of him neither of which showed his left side. 
And also because of this injury, Potemkin just went into himself and considered becoming a monk, but was summoned back to court by Catherine, where he became a major general in the cavalry. The Russo-Turkish War, fought between 1768 to 1774, was one of Grigori's shining moments. He served brilliantly, being on the front line, defeating the Turks in one battle after another. When he made his return to St. Petersburg in 1774, he was a war hero. But upon his return, he was only second to Catherine's favorite at the time, Alexander Vasilchikov. But within months, Potemkin became the Empress's lover, usurping Vasilchikov. It is at this point we return to the spot we left off. Now, before we feel sorry for Alexander, he was given a hundred thousand rubles, seven thousand peasants, piles of diamonds, a palace in Moscow, and a generous position. Being an ex-lover of uh, Catherine was not a bad gig if you could get it. She wrote to Grimm of the young man, quote, I have parted from a certain excellent but very boring citizen, who has been immediately replaced, I know not how, by one of the greatest, oddest, most amusing, and original personalities of this Iron Age. Potemkin's reputation at the court was one of a brilliant, like boorish man, one who could put on the charm and class when necessary, though. Troyat recounts a chance meeting between Potemkin and Grigory Orlov on a staircase in the palace. Quote, What's the news at court? Potemkin asked pleasantly. Nothing, replied Orlov, except that you are going up, and I am coming down. The love between the two was apparent to everyone. They would pass notes to each other when they were apart, no matter what the situation. It was more than love. It was infatuation of the highest degree. She once wrote of Potemkin, A whole flood of absurd words flows from my head. I do not understand how you can endure a woman whose ideas are so incoherent. Oh, Monsieur Potemkin, what a confounded miracle you have wrought to have so deranged a head that heretofore and the world passed on for the best in Europe. What a shame! What a sin! Catherine the Second, a prey to this mad passion. You will disgust him with your folly, I tell myself. There were rumors that she was so enamored of Grigori that she married him secretly in December of 1774 at the church of St. Samson in St. Petersburg. While the marriage papers are lost to history, there is a lot of evidence, especially from their correspondence, to believe the story. Catherine calls him her spouse and husband, as well as referring herself as his wife in a number of letters between the two. But there was more to this relationship than lust and love, as the two were deeply involved in governing Russia. Potemkin was made vice president of the Council of War, as well as general-in-chief, and given the rank of Knight of the Order of St. Andrew. After the war against the Turks was successfully concluded, Catherine had him made count of the Russian Empire. Everything in his life was taken care of, including all of his family who joined him at the palace. He was lavished with a salary of 12,000 rubles a month. Still, it wasn't enough to take care of his gambling debts, which he kept racking up. But the Empress would quietly take care of his debt. Talking to his nephew Engelhardt, Potemkin said, quote, Could any man be happier than I? All my hopes, 
all my desires have been fulfilled as if by magic. I wanted to have great responsibilities. I have them. Decorations? I have them all. I love gambling. I've been able to lose incalculable sums. I love to give entertainments. I have given splendid ones. I love to buy estates. I possess as many as I want. I loved to build houses. I have built palaces. I love jewels. No private person has jewels finer and rarer than mine. In a word, I am perfectly happy. Those around him were impressed by Potemkin. Prince de Lianne wrote, He is the most extraordinary man I have ever met. He gives the appearance of laziness, and yet works incessantly, always reclining on his couch, yet never sleeping day or night, because his devotion to the sovereign he adores keeps him constantly active. Melancholy in his pleasures, unhappy by virtue of being happy, blasé about everything, quickly wearied of anything, morose, inconstant, a profound philosopher, an able minister, a sublime politician, and a child of ten, prodigiously wealthy without having a sou, discoursing on theology to his generals, and on war to his archbishops, never reading, but probing those to whom he speaks, wanting everything like a child, capable of dispensing with everything like a great man. What then is his magic? Genius, and then genius, and then more genius. Catherine and Grigori continued their torrid affair for two years until both of them started eyeing younger people for their bedroom. When the empress found a new consort, one Peter Zavadovsky, many in the court thought that Potemkin's time was up. But that was not the case. While the bedroom was no longer being shared, the two stayed together when it came to running the country. They were joined at the hip intellectually, if not physically. The liaison with Zavadovsky lasted only a few years, and he was quickly replaced with Simon Zorich. What was interesting was how Potemkin was instrumental in putting together and Catherine and her new lovers. Now to top it off, the men gave Grigori how much you say it? Thank you payments. Zorich gave Potemkin a hundred thousand rubles, which Grigori took happily. Unfortunately for Zorich, the liaison with the Empress was short-lived, and he was furious at it. But, as with others, he was made very happy with a lifetime pension, along with seven thousand more serfs to take care of him. Not a bad deal. Many others followed. You can just imagine how foreign emissaries thought of all of the bedroom antics of Empress Catherine. British Ambassador Sir James Howard Harris wrote, Her court, from being conducted with the greatest dignity and exterior decorum, has gradually become a scene of deprivation and immorality. There is now no hope of her being reclaimed, and, unless a miraculous gleam of light breaks in upon her at a time of life, when it is almost too late to correct, we must not expect any favorable change either in her public or in her private conduct. Prince Potemkin rules her with an absolute sway, thoroughly acquainted with her weaknesses, her desires, and her passions. He operates on them and makes them operate as he pleases. 
Besides this strong hold on her, he keeps her in constant dread of the Grand Duke, and has convinced her that he is the only person who can discover in time and protect her against any undertakings from that quarter. Now, others may have held her in low esteem because of her liaisons, but Catherine had to look at all that she accomplished by the age of 46. She had taken control of most of Poland, destroyed the Turks in battle, repulsed the Pugachev Rebellion, and completely controlled Russia. She had reached her dream when she entered the court of Elizabeth, and then some. Now her attention turned to her son Paul and his pregnant wife Natalia. Unfortunately for the Grand Duchess Natalia, she was unable to deliver her baby because of physical abnormalities. She died after delivering a stillborn boy. Paul went nuts, breaking furniture throughout the palace. Catherine was cold and calculated in her assessment of the death of her daughter-in-law. She wrote, Well, since it has been proven that she could not have a living child, or rather, that she could not give birth to one, we must not think about her any more. Even more coldly, she and Potemkin put together plans to have her son remarried as soon as possible. Paul was now full of rage and hatred towards his mother. Catherine had Natalia's room searched, and in it she found incriminating evidence that she was having an affair with one Count Razumovsky. She put the letters proving the affair in front of her grieving son, who groaned when he realized his love had no feelings for her. He was in tatters. The Empress quickly went over a list of eligible princesses, all of whom were Prussian, and came upon one who seemed to be the perfect fit, Sophia Dorothea of Württemberg. Paul at once forgot his late wife and became excited at the prospect of marrying this 16-year-old beauty. Next week, Paul takes another wife and gives Catherine grandchildren to guarantee the continuation of the Romanov dynasty. The new duchess gives birth to a future Tsar, Alexander I. Now, for this week in Russian history, for the week of May 8th through the 14th. In 1801, Nicholas Repnin, Russian statesman under Catherine the Great, died. In 1891, the Atsu incident occurred. Tsarevich Nicholas Alexandrovich of Imperial Russia, later to be known as Nicholas II, suffers a critical head injury during a sword attack by Japanese policeman Tsuda Sanzo. He is rescued by Prince George of Greece and Denmark. How the world would have changed had the assassination attempt succeeded. In 1913, Igor Sikorsky becomes the first man to pilot a four-engine aircraft. It's kind of especially important to me and my family, as he was partly responsible for allowing my family to immigrate to the United States in 1953. In 1920, in the Polish-Soviet War, the Polish army, and I know I'm going to get this name pronounced wrong, under General Edward Rydz-Zmigli, celebrates its capture of Kiev with a victory parade on Kryshchak. In 1949, the Soviet Union lifted its blockade of Berlin. In 1955, eight communist bloc countries, including the Soviet Union, signed a mutual defense treaty called the Warsaw Pact. And in 1984, the Soviet Union announced that it will boycott the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, California. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. 
please join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group and join the growing community to share ideas, ask questions, and make comments. But as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.